pretty big deal. So thank you for that. Um, welcome. We are, uh, before we get started, though, there's one announcement I want to add in. Um, we are going to be hosting a 24-hour prayer vigil. This is going to be March 29th. That's next Sunday from 12.01 a.m. March 29th to midnight March 29th. And uh, Robert Allen is putting that together. Um, his number is on the screen. We will put that up on Facebook and the website later. Hopefully we'll have an electronic way for you to sign up. But um, we're going to have time slots for you to sign up on so that there is someone praying every minute for 24 hours. Um, you can do that in your home and just sign up for your slot, pray there in your home. If you are able and would like to, we're going to have a prayer room set up up here um, that will not have more than 10 people in it. And you can, uh, you can come here and pray, and uh, that way we will have 24 hours of solid prayer seeking God during this time. So that's next Sunday. That number will be where you can reach it uh, later, and you can get a hold of Robert, get signed up, be a part of that. We are in a series called The Table, and, you know, all of us preachers are debating this week whether we talk about everything that's going on. We kind of did that last week, and I think if you're like me, you're kind of tired of it. And that's all I talk about all week, and so I'm tired of that. We're going back to normal. And what we're doing is going through the Gospel of Luke, because in Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or heading to a meal. And Luke uses the table as a metaphor, as a setting, as a place for a lot of the action and a lot of the things that goes on in his Gospel. And this morning, we're going to look at a specific section. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 14 if you want to start turning over there in your Bibles. Um, but first, I want, to, I want to tell you a little story about a district party convention, district party conference that was being held in Moscow province in Russia in the height of the communist reign. And they were holding this conference, and it was all the local leaders were up on the stage, and they, there was a new party chairman uh, for that district who had just come on. He had replaced the previous party chairman who had been arrested. And so he was leading the proceedings, and he had a couple of local dignitaries up there with him. And they're all standing on the stage, and everybody's uh, celebrating and happy. And at the end, he calls for an ovation a celebration of Comrade Stalin. And so everybody stands to their feet. There is a rousing ovation and people start clapping. And they're clapping and they're clapping and it is just thunderous applause. And the applause just keeps going. And it goes and it goes and it goes. Two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. People are starting to get tired. They're looking around at each other. Who's going to be the first one to stop this whole madness? Because they're just clapping. And, and they keep going, and they keep going. The party chairman could have done it, but he's new. And he's replacing a guy who just got arrested. And so he doesn't want to be that guy. So he's not going to stop. And he's looking around for somebody else to stop. And the insanity keeps going. They just keep clapping, applauding Comrade Stalin, who is not even there. But nobody wants to be the one to stop the proceedings. And they're just clapping. And it goes to finally nine minutes, ten minutes, eleven minutes. At twelve minutes... The head of the local paper company, who is a strong-willed, stubborn man, finally had enough. 
and he stops. And he adjusts himself, and he sits down. And like a miracle, the wave sweeps through the crowd. Everybody stops. Everybody sits down. Everything goes back to normal. That night, the head of the paper company was arrested for a different charge. Um, something quite different, but as he signed Form 206, the final document of his interrogation, the interrogator leaned over to him and whispered, don't ever be the first to stop clapping. Now we laugh at that and we kind of scoff at that, but the truth is we're living that in our lives too. We're terrified to be the first one to stop clapping. It's kind of like middle school. You remember middle school? I know for some of you that was a long time ago. But, but remember middle school? It's like the middle school lunchroom. Um, every single thing that you do is critiqued. You feel like the whole world is watching you. And, and where you stand, how you look, what your hair's like, who you talk to, who you're friends with, who you sit with, everything is being scrutinized and looked at. And you feel like you're on the stage all the time. Psychologist Ruth Berenda and her associates carried an interesting experiment out with teenagers uh, not long ago. Their plan was simple. They brought in a group of, of 10 adolescents and they wanted to test them. And so each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hand when the teacher pointed to the longest line on the chart. And so what one person in the group did not know is that the other nine had been instructed before to only raise their hand for the second longest line. And so they brought in group after group after group. And every single time, nine hands would go up and the one dupe would kind of look around and, and look and, at the board and check themselves and then kind of sheepishly raise their hand. They did it with young children. They did it with high school students. They even did it with adults. And it kept happening. Um, eventually, 75% of the cases, Berenda concluded, some people would rather be president than to be right. We get that. We live that. We're living that today. Um, we call it social media. If you look at social media um, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they're probably going to shut me down now because I'm criticizing them. But regardless of what it is, we live in these lives where everything is, is manufactured. We manufacture a, a family moment to put on Facebook. We, we can't just have a birthday party. It has to be Pinterest worthy. Um, we, we create these, these things and we end up feeling terrible about ourselves because we are comparing ourselves to celebrities and strangers. We're comparing somebody else's greatest hits to my B-side. And, and it doesn't work. Um, one therapist coined the term comparisonitis as an emotional sickness which can't be intellectualized or curbed by willpower. Ethan Cross, the professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, wrote, No age group or social class is immune from envy. Envy is being taken to an extreme. We are constantly bombarded by photoshopped lives, and that exerts a toll on us, the likes of which we have never experienced in the history of our species. You don't believe me. Somebody a couple of weeks ago said that there was a run on toilet paper. And we all ran out and bought toilet paper. Um, 
Now, we don't know why. If you talk to anybody, they can't tell you why we're out of toilet paper. But we are out of toilet paper. You cannot find a roll of toilet paper. The hand sanitizer, the Clorox wipes, I get that. But the toilet paper, we don't understand. We just know everybody's buying toilet paper, so I better get some before they buy it all. Um, that's us. We live in this middle school lunchroom culture. And, and that was the first century Greco-Roman culture that Jesus was in. They lived in an honor and shame culture um, where status was everything. And, and it, was, it was important. It was most seen in meals and at the table. Guests of honor would be seated closest to the host. And if you were of a better status than someone who was seated further up, you would be taking an ass to move. And so status was important. It could be fragile. It could be great. To, to get a better position could boost your business. It could boost your, your credibility. It could boost your reputation. It was a big deal. So we find Jesus at the table this week beginning with what looks like practical advice. Um, but by the end of it, we're going to see that it's never just that simple with Jesus. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start with verse 1. Read along with me, or it will be up here. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be, pay, be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now on the surface, this seems pretty normal. Jesus heals a guy gives them some practical advice about how to live, and then moves on. But it's never really that simple with Jesus. The man who's healed has dropsy. Now, that's not something that we currently get a lot. You don't hear of a lot of diagnoses of dropsy. Um, in our culture, it's called edema. Dropsy is characterized by a retention of fluid, ironically, with an unquenchable thirst. Tannehill, in his commentary, notes that the Greek word translated dropsy is based on the word water. It kind of means waterlogged. This is not a disease itself, but it's a side effect of another problem, generally something like congestive heart failure. But the, the man who has dropsy is craving the very thing that's making him ill. So now we see that this wasn't just a random chance healing. Jesus is setting up the teaching that's going to follow. Because not unlike the guests who are choosing places of honor, this guy's craving something that he can never get quenched. These people have a thirst for status and honor, and it can never 
be quenched by the table. As we've talked about before, the, the first century Middle Eastern world, banquets were all about protocol and social rank, much like that middle school lunchroom. So Jesus steps in and says, forget all of this. Forget honoring yourself. Forget the comparison that drives you. Forget trying to advance your status and standing. Stop worrying about social rank and protocol. Why? When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, verse 15, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please, have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Here's the deal. God has opened up the table to everybody. He stopped calling the chosen and sent his chosen to invite all of us to that table, regardless of status, regardless of standing. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news in this story. The gospel, the good news of this story is you can stop counting. You don't have to count where you stand. You don't have to count where you go. You don't have to count where you sit. In an honor and shame culture, they were always counting where they were, counting status, counting favors, counting debts, counting honor. It's all about counting and keeping records and adding up. And, and inviting persons to a banquet could, could elevate your status and, and, again, could help your, your business. It could help your, your life. It could help you on so many, so many levels. It was a, a good old boy system. And I scratch your back and you scratch mine. And, and this is why Jesus' advice seems so ludicrous. It's crazy. But it's also the kingdom of God. See, Jesus says the days of counting is over. You don't have to count anymore. You don't have to keep track of who owes you what. You don't have to keep track of whether you're better than this person or that person. The kingdom life stands in stark contrast to the life of this world, to our middle school lunchroom culture. So truth be told, though, that culture doesn't end in school. We know that. It carries over to work, carries over to social clubs, carries over to book clubs. And I think the question that stands before us as believers is, what does our faith really mean? Because see, this is more than a story that simply moralizes the importance of welcoming others. This story reminds me that God has given all good things to me for no good reason. God's called me to His table. I am the highways and the hedges. And God has called me to His table for no reason. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I can't offer Him anything in return that He doesn't already have. The question is, do I take my faith seriously enough to 
to do the same thing? Does it mean enough to me that I can turn around and do the same thing to those that I come into contact with? Because we too live in an honor and shame culture. We live in a, a commentary culture where everybody is making comments on social media about what somebody else is doing and nobody's really doing anything. Can we change that? Does our faith mean enough to us that we can change that? What if we invite the person that nobody wants to invite to lunch at my job to lunch? What if I have dinner with that guy that's really annoying that nobody can stand? What if I invite the kid who seems like an outcast to sit at my table in the lunchroom? What if I change the way I do things and, and make my faith real. See, Jesus in this passage invites not just the, the first century hearers, but the 21st century hearers to break the rules of what have you done for me lately. He invites us to value others, not because of what they can offer me, but because of how they're valued by their creator. The good news is that you're free from counting. What the host of the dinner party thinks of you doesn't matter anymore because you've been invited by the king you sit at the table of the king you didn't earn it you don't deserve it there's nothing you can do to repay it and so as such we go to the highways and the hedges we go out to a lost and dying world and say the table of the king has called you the table of the king is open to everybody because he doesn't want anybody to be left out. He wants his house to be full. You can quit worrying about where you rank in your culture because you can stop counting because he's made you count. He's made you count eternally. This morning, I don't know where you are, but I encourage you as, as we go to God in prayer, thank Him. Glorify Him. Thank Him that I count when I can't do anything to count. Thank Him that I'm invited to a table that I can't do anything to earn or to repay. And then let's repent of our middle school lunchroom culture and vow that we're going to change that. We're going to change the way we interact. We're going to change the way we react to the world. We're going to act like people who have been made to count for no apparent reason. Join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven,